Well, welcome to the Missionary District podcast. I am Deacon Amos, and I'm here today with Father Rob, or as I like to call him, Father Rob. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea where that was going to (laughs) go. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey, everybody. Uh, I am Father Rob, and uh, it's good to be here. Uh, Jordan Duncan asked me if I would uh, take over his role because he said he was too handsome for podcasts and uh, <laughs> needed needed some more FaceTime with people. Or No, I'm just kidding. He, he really just said he was tired of being a bridesmaid to Deacon Amos, and he wanted the glory for himself, so he went <laughs> off and started his own podcast and uh he's doing really well he's getting all the glory just for himself like he wanted i guess and you know all those good things yeah what he told me was that he just wanted to focus on his more successful podcast venture oh, that makes sense yeah that's that rings true actually i didn't want to say it but the second part to what he said was you know he thought that these topics were just so dumb <laughs> he couldn't commit to having to talk about them any longer Okay, just kidding. (laughs) Naturally, though, one of my biggest goals in life is now to make sure that this podcast is more successful than Jordan's podcast. Yeah, so let's do it. I'm good for that. If you haven't yet, please like, subscribe, share, mainly out of spite. Yeah, unlike (laughs) his, unsubscribe to his. It's called Lesser Known Lewis for everybody that wants to know. that. Don't listen to it under any circumstances. It's bad. Uh, lots of one star reviews, terrible. you know, those sorts of things. Um, <laughs> People are going to think we really hate Jordan. <laughs> the, the truth is, is that if you rib someone this much, you must really like them. And uh, we, we like Jordan. And it's, I was actually asked by uh, Deacon Amos to j- join in. And it's a privilege to be here. And we're on a topic that is really enjoyable to jump in on. So I'm glad to be a part of it today. Great. All right, so we're going to talk about infant baptism today. Awesome. I love infant baptism. It's actually one of my favorite things to witness in the church, and we'll get into this, but it's mainly because the gospel is just so clearly visible in it, and I can't witness it without being moved by that and coming face-to-face with the extravagance of God's love for me. Um, At the same time, infant baptism can be a very volatile topic. Not all Christians agree on this one, and it's one of those topics that tends to spark debate and an emotional response whenever it's brought up. And because of that, I think sometimes it's hard to have um, really good dialogue about it. A lot of conversations get sidetracked pretty quickly. Um, It's hard to feel like you've been heard or to have a good conversation about it. And so I feel like that's one of the benefits of a format like this, is that it provides a non-confrontational way to engage with a topic like this that you might be triggered by or it might be controversial for you. In this context, you don't have to be distracted about what your response is going to be or anything like that. You're free really to just listen. And we decided that we would break this up into two parts, actually. So in this first episode, we're going to talk about infant baptism in history and infant baptism in scripture. And then we'll do another part where we talk about infant baptism and the gospel, and then talk about some common objections that people have and sort of wrestle through those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's great. I'm excited to get into it. 
Great. So let's start with the weakest argument then, uh, at least in my opinion. Now, that doesn't mean it, it's weak. It's just weaker than the bunch, I guess. Um, and it doesn't mean it shouldn't carry some weight. But for me, and probably for most people in an individualistic culture, it's not the most compelling thing. And that is an argument from history. And I think we could just basically sum that up by saying that a large majority of the Christian church around the world today and throughout history has held to the practice of infant baptism. Most people just take for granted that children of believing parents are born into the covenant people of God and given full access to all the blessings and privileges of the covenant. And if you're looking for more information on the history of infant baptism, there's a guy named, I think it's Joachim, is that how you pronounce that? I actually had no idea. I was waiting for you to say it so oh. I could hear it. <laughs> Joachim Jeremiah is how I pronounce it. Anyways, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, he has a book titled Infant Baptism in the First Four Centuries that is uh, really, really helpful. And it's a small book. It's only about 100 pages or so. But the, the truth is, it's not really a, a disputed fact. The practice of infant baptism has been the dominant view within the Christian church for its entire history. I, I just want to jump in and say, I think it's really helpful that you say it that way, the fact that you're calling it the dominant view rather than the best or the only option or any of those sorts of things. And I would hope that people that are listening can hear it with that, is that saying that it's the dominant view is just a fact of history. It's just the reality that when we look back through history, it was and still is in the world the dominant view of baptism. But in order to come at it without all of our preconceptions jumping up in our face and all of our arguments jumping up um, and we're really being able to listen, we have to hear that word dominant, not just best. And so when we start out here, uh, please note that we're trying to give you the view that is the dominant view. And uh, hopefully that will allow you to listen a little bit more clearly and not start with the objections right off the bat. Right. It's also the best view. But... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that yet. We haven't got to the reasons why yet, though. So, yeah, basically the first real opposition to the practice of infant baptism came in the 16th century with what's called the Anabaptist movement. And so this is post-Reformation, and the Anabaptists' rejection of infant baptism caused all kinds of conflict with both Protestants and Catholics, because most of the Protestant churches that formed out of the Reformation continued and still continue to practice infant baptism. So Lutherans, Anglicans... Methodists, Presbyterians, they all practice infant baptism. So I just want to jump in here for a second because there were dissenters throughout church history that came before Anabaptists. I mean, it's fair to say that there were some variants before the Anabaptists in the 16th century, correct? Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm glad that you pointed that out because as somebody who's pro-infant baptism, I think when I give an overview of history, it has a tendency of uh, painting history as something that is really uniform. And that's never the case. There was some variance on this through history. I think that's why I phrase it the way that I do. The first real opposition to infant baptism came in the 16th century. Uh, that doesn't mean that it was universally practiced or that there wasn't some minor opposition before that. Yeah. But in general, the people who weren't practicing infant baptism weren't against infant baptism. They just weren't doing it. Right. And the reasons that they weren't doing it were, um, I would say, because of a superstitious view of baptism, coupled with uh, maybe a misunderstanding of scriptures like Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, which says, 
Um, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. So that's a terrifying verse. Yeah, absolutely, it and is. I, th- I think Jordan and I talked a little bit about um, that one of the abuses of baptism is when we infuse magical thinking into it and treat it as a formula for salvation instead of a sacrament that defers to the mystery of salvation and the grace that God dispenses as he wills. So if you take that, like that's a, that's a very common abuse through history. And so if you take that line of thinking and combine it with a belief that there's no forgiveness for sins committed after baptism, after you've come to a knowledge of the truth, as the Hebrews uh, verse says, then you get people delaying their baptism as long as possible. Kind of like, let me get all my sinning out of the way, and then when it looks like death is knocking on my doorstep, then baptize me. Yeah, you and Jordan did go through that on the last one, and if you haven't heard it, you should jump back to that and listen to it, because it does answer that question of the fact that we do not see baptism that way, or the sacraments with that magical, uh, in that magical sense. It was very good. Right. Yeah, so I think, you know, pointing out that there was some variance on this in history, that's not wrong, and it's a perfectly fine thing to bring up in this conversation, but I think we still have to acknowledge that the reasons people give today for opposing infant baptism are not the same as that. Yeah. Right? People today aren't rejecting infant baptism because they think that it objectively confers salvation and that there's no path for forgiveness after your baptism. That's right. They're, they're generally doing it because they feel like the individual should choose Christ, that a person needs to repent prior to baptism, maybe because there's some measure of intellectual comprehension that is required. Um, and we'll touch on some of those points a little bit later. My point is, I guess, that if you're looking for a precedent in church history for opposing infant baptism— those kinds of fringe cases that we do see through history don't really hold up. They're, they are doing the same thing, but they're doing it for very different reasons. Yeah, right. So I, I want to pick up on something you just said. You just said that there are people currently, not the previous ones in history, but the current people are generally against infant baptism because they believe individuals should choose Christ, that there needs to be some measure of intellectual comprehension that's required for it. I would say that personally, that hasn't been my experience overall when I'm discussing this point with people. Most of the people that I've spoken to, once they get pushed, they might admit that. Once they get pushed, they might go, sure, I guess I do kind of mean that. But I think right up front, and I say that point to say, I think you're right. That is at the heart of what they're saying. But I think up front, most people start with an objection that's maybe a little bit simpler. Uh, Usually people, to me at least, say, but where is it in Scripture? Where does it actually say this in the words of Jesus? Or where have the apostles actually spoken about this? They want something explicitly said in Scripture, or they want an explicit moment where we can see it in Scripture, and they don't read the Bible that way. And so because of that, they take it at face value and say, then they must mean no infant baptism. At least that seems to be the argument that comes up immediately to me. Right. I think that's a a fair point. I think you're right, that that people generally, that's the thing they lead with, at least the thing that they're saying. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is that we are immersed in a cultural environment that informs our beliefs and our response to things. Yeah. So I guess when I'm saying that, you know, people are against infant baptism because they think that somebody should choose it or something like that, 
that's something that, to my mind, is born more out of the cultural um, situation that we're in. Yeah. Uh, but you're right in that it's not necessarily articulated that way, that the thing that they're going to lead with is it's not in Scripture, which sounds a lot more pious. It, it's, yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and it actually is why, you know, right off the top where, where you talked about needing to be able to have a conversation is so important. Because as you push on some of these things, it starts to come out of people that they their response is, but shouldn't we have to choose that? And most people won't just say that. Most people won't just respond with that. But as they get pushed, that cultural side does come out. Yeah, so I, I agree. It's there. And almost every person, at least that I've had, and even in my own journey, when I didn't see infant baptism, I don't, I don't know that I ever saw it as a negative, but I just didn't know what to do with it. And so in my own journey, I went, well, aren't we supposed to be able to give a testimony or something like that? Isn't there supposed to be this additional piece of us knowing what we're doing? Um, and I didn't realize how cultural that was until I started studying the scriptures more, actually. Right. That's great. So with that, then, let's, let's jump into scripture. And right off the bat, I think we can admit that scripture nowhere explicitly addresses the subject of infant baptism. And I think there's good reason for that. The New, the New Testament gives us a glimpse into a very short period of church history, a period where the vast majority of growth was coming by way of converts to the Christian faith, as opposed to growth by way of new births. And so most of the instruction given about baptism is given in this context. However, this does not mean that the beliefs and practices of infant baptism are altogether absent from the New Testament. I think Scripture implicitly affirms the practice of infant baptism in, in several ways. Uh, I think this is, just before you keep going, I think this is really important. Um, I think it really comes back to the way we view and read Scripture. So the fact that there is an implicit teaching and instruction within Holy Scripture is important for all of us, all of us as Christians, to know that. It's not just a rule book telling us what to do or what not to do. It's actually a gift of grace that transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit, leading us to follow the way of Christ in everything that we do. So it doesn't have to explicitly speak to everything because it already is moving us in a direction that makes sense of the world around us and the things we do. And so that implicit side of what Holy Scripture is teaching us is so valuable and so needed. And I think that that's a dangerous part of what we've started to lose a little bit within our cultural context. But also, I think the the lack of engagement with Scripture that we're seeing in the church and, in, and with most Christians is also part of the reason for that. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So we'll talk through, I think, three main points, unless you want to add something. But um, good. so the first one that I wanted to cover is the fact that there is a correlation in the scriptures between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant. And I think pretty much everybody acknowledges that. Each of these is a rite of initiation into the faith of our fathers or into the covenant community, and their nature is to be a sign and seal of God's covenant. The God of Christianity is a covenant-making God. He makes promises to his people and to their children, and he keeps those promises. So God chooses Abraham, and God chooses Isaac. He doesn't wait for Isaac to be old enough to choose him, but Isaac enters into the promises of God given to Abraham by virtue of his birth into that family— 
And the sign of those promises and that covenantal relationship with God is circumcision, which takes place on the eighth day after a male child is born. I just want to say, you know, in I said earlier about my journey in this, this was probably one of the key points that changed my mind, and I didn't see it. I had no grid for the fact that baptism was correlated with circumcision, and it was my lack of understanding of the scriptures. And when I read that correlation explicitly in scripture in a couple different places, all of a sudden I realized, oh no, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've missed something important here, and it's very clear in front of me, and I didn't know what to do with that. So that, and Abraham and Isaac was a big part of that, realizing the way that God established covenant within family. Right really changed my mind in a lot of ways, at least to be open to it. Not that it changed it entirely by itself, yeah. but it was a massive part of that change. Yeah, that's good. It takes a long time for minds to change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it does. <laughs> I have to sit on something. I know for me too, I have to sit on something for a long time and just sort of let it ruminate in there before yeah. it. <laughs> and there's a fear to change, right? What if, what if you were right and now you're straying into some crazy weird doctrine that nobody really believes? Right. And then you start to realize, wait a second, the church always believed this, right? So it was this that started that process for me. And then things like the historical argument that you've already talked about just added and bolstered right. what was in front of me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Romans 4.11 says about Abraham that he received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So circumcision doesn't make faith unnecessary, but it does confer a sort of citizenship-like status into the people of God. This is the visible sign of the righteousness that Abraham received from God by faith that forever marks him as a member of this community. Beautiful. So kind of keep that in mind, and then we can read Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 12, which sort of makes the connection a little more explicit. It says, In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is likened to a circumcision made without hands that accomplishes our union with Christ. And of course, we know that it is our union with Christ that makes us righteous, not any merit of our own. And so Paul is speaking here in very similar terms about baptism as he was in Romans about circumcision. Both of them are initiatory rites into the covenant people of God through which we become sons and daughters of righteousness. And then Paul also speaks at length in, in both Romans and Galatians about the relation between the Christian believers and Abraham. He states that, uh, this is Galatians 3, 27 to 29. He says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul seems to believe that baptism grafts the believer into the promises given to Abraham and his offspring promises that were only previously accessible through circumcision. So in some ways, baptism replaces circumcision, but they're not exactly the same. There, there are changes made between the old covenant rite of circumcision and the new covenant rite of baptism. 
And what we see in these verses is that the new covenant does away with any discrimination between Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And this is in harmony with the principles that we see throughout the whole of the New Testament, namely that the new covenant works to extend and expand upon the privileges of the old. So the new covenant is more expansive. It is more widely available, not less. So circumcision was only for Jews. Baptism is for Jews and Gentiles, every race, every ethnicity. Circumcision was only for males. Baptism is for male and female. Everyone gets to participate. And so if we think about our children in view of the expansive nature of the new covenant, then I think the only practical change it implies is that female children of believing parents should be baptized as well as male children. There, there just doesn't seem to be any biblical rationale for us to make the new covenant right more restrictive than the old by saying that our children can't participate at all until they meet some qualification that the Bible never even mentions. I think it's such a beautiful picture, that piece of uh, realizing that it was males that were circumcised and the welcoming of females into that circumcision. Well, how were they welcomed in previous? It was through family, yeah, right? And so it was a whole half of humanity that wouldn't have been accepted if we said that it was only the person that went through that thing by themselves. But if you extend it to the family of those that have gone through it, it brings a whole group of people into covenant with them. And just a, a beautiful picture of um, what we're seeing in baptism played out more thoroughly uh, is is right there in front of us. Right. It's beautiful. It really clashes with uh, the individualism of our culture, though. It really does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the second thing that, that I wanted to talk about is uh, perhaps an argument from silence, which isn't usually very strong, uh, but in this case, it carries a lot of weight. Um, and I would say it's not an argument from silence as much as it is an argument from the cultural context of first century Christianity, because there's, there's actually silence on both sides. One of the things that we see in circumcision and in all of God's interactions with his people is that children are implicitly included. Or another way to say that would be that nowhere in all of Scripture are children of any age ever denied access to the blessings of the covenant. At least I've never seen that in the Scriptures. No. Um, and, and I think that's an important point, because sometimes people will say, well, you can't point to a passage that explicitly tells us to baptize our children. And that's true, but you also can't point to a passage that explicitly tells us not to baptize our children. And I think that carries more weight because it is entirely undisputed that in Judaism, children were included and born into the covenant promises, not by any merit on their part, but purely due to the grace of God, which had been made available to them by virtue of their birth into the nation of Israel. And, and, and we must remember that the early church was almost entirely comprised of converts from Judaism. This simply is the cultural climate of the early Christian church. Their assumption, undoubtedly, is that their children are included just as they have always been included. And as such, I think it is just too difficult to imagine that such a radical shift as removing the rights of children to enter the covenant and receive the covenant sign could have been made without causing some major disturbances to the converts from Judaism. Like, I mean, we both work in a church. 
<laughs> and if you want to see people in an uproar, like just imagine, do something that affects their children. Do something that revokes the status of their children as members of the covenant community, yeah. that revokes their status as children of God. And then, you know, try to tell me that you're not going to have a pastoral crisis on your hands. <laughs> Like, like you would just have to talk about it. You, you have to. It's a, it's a great point. And as you said, it's not actually an argument from silence because there's silence on all sides. So it's not like we're trying to take uh, that in and of ourselves. But it's such a big deal for a newly formed church to not have addressed this. Uh, we don't see it anywhere. It's, there's complete silence on on this. So whether we look at the New Testament or the patristic age, that age that comes directly after the New Testament, there's no explanation to Jewish converts that their children were no longer members of the covenant community. How could it be possible that a Jewish convert like Peter needs to be put into a trance and shown a vision of animals being lowered on a tarp to explain that non-Jewish people could come into the covenant and are welcome in the covenant now, but he and all other Jewish converts needed nothing to now disclude, to now send out all of their children that they thought were already in the people of God. (laughs) Right. Right? Like, even if it wasn't just about the ones that came after, but that generation, those young children, the babies that were already born and already circumcised and already present, no one's talking about them even and what they must do yeah. in that moment. And that that's such a, a glaring uh, miss for the new church yeah. if they hadn't talked about it. And the reality is that they would have just had to. God was instructing his people consistently. He was uh, explaining to them constantly where the changes were. This, the, the New Testament is full of places. Even Paul has to go into it with his new churches to explain the differences. No, that's not... We don't do that anymore, whether it's from a pagan religion or from Judaism. He consistently has to narrow the place, but this one never gets addressed. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a big miss otherwise. So I don't think we can overstate the importance of this point. For thousands of years, Jewish families circumcised their male children on the eighth day as a way of formally bringing them into the covenant with God. From a parental perspective, the abrupt removal of their children's rights to enter that covenant with God is completely unthinkable. It's a complete change to their entire understanding of life, of family, and of God. You couldn't do something like that without talking about it. It would have required a massive amount of pastoral and theological explanation from the apostles. So just as they did in other areas that changed, it only makes sense if it wasn't a contentious issue and children were included. Right. Just as they always had been. As Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Yeah. Amazing. I think, honestly, I think this is one of the most underutilized arguments in the infant baptism conversation, right? Like, I never really see people talking about this, but it's just so important. Like we can't just impose our cultural assumptions on the New Testament. I think, you know, maybe as a thought experiment, if the Bible was written today, you know, in 2022 in the modern West, and it was still silent on the question of infant baptism, then that actually might indicate a credo-baptist position. Because in our culture, we do assume that individuals have to make choices like that. 
But those are not the assumptions of first century Jews. No. So when we consider that cultural context, we just have to affirm that children are included in the covenantal rights. Yeah. Like you, you could change it, but you have to talk about it. You have to tell people you're changing something like that. Yeah. It's not that it couldn't have changed. And that's, that's the key difference, what you just said there. It's not that it couldn't have changed. It's that if it had changed, it would have had to have been addressed because it was already assumed by the entire culture. And so something entirely assumed by the whole culture had to have been discussed, taught, and then put into the people. Yeah. Okay, so our our third and final section under this sort of infant baptism in Scripture heading uh, is the Greek word oikos. This word occurs several times in the New Testament in relation to baptism, and it is usually translated household. Um, so to go back to the cultural climate of the New Testament, the Jewish conception of household is fairly broad, and it, it has specific connotations of inclusivity. So a Jewish household would consist of a man and his wife, uh, plus all of their children, including adopted children, as well as any servants that were in their employ, uh, any extended family that might be under their care. Like, it's fairly broad. And the use of this word oikos indicates that the involvement of children was expected, and it rules out the possibility that they might have been excluded in any way. So Joachim Jeremiah says this, From early times, there was a constant biblical oikos formula, which not only referred to the children in addition to the adults, but had quite special reference to the children, and not least to any small children who might be present. And I think maybe an example would help to sort of bring that point home. I don't think we use this terminology anymore, but occasionally we used to have on our Sunday mornings what we would call a family service. And I think even in our culture, I think everybody knows what that implies. If you walked into a church on a Sunday morning and you saw a sign that said family service today, what would you think that means? Well, most definitely, at least what we've seen is a number of people just turn around and walk out. (laughs) They know what that means. That means that their kids are staying in the service with them for the entire for the entirety of the worship service. Right, yeah, we're not going to have any other separate children's programming, That's right. but we expect our children to be in the service with us. So there's specific connotations of inclusivity for children. Yes. And maybe not everybody has children to bring, and that's fine, but children can't be excluded. Yeah. You wouldn't call it a family service if children weren't welcome to be there. Right. So the, the usage of the word oikos is pretty similar to that in that it implies the participation of every member of the household, regardless of their age, and it specifically includes children. So one example we have of this is in Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 25 to 34, and Rob's going to read that for us. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. Awesome. That's a great story. So, you know, Paul and Silas have this encounter with the Philippian jailer. The jailer believes in Jesus and then takes them back to his house where they preach the gospel to him and to everyone who's in his house. And then they baptize the entire household, the entire oikos. Um, So were there young children or infants present here? We don't know. Very likely, yes. Um, If there weren't, then using the word oikos is a little bit misleading because we already talked about it. it does have those connotations. But I think, you know, let's give as much as we can to the other side. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that there are no children present here or at any other instance of the oikos formula being used in the New Testament. Even if that was the case, we still have to grapple with these texts because what we do know is that there was somebody other than the Philippian jailer getting baptized. You, you, you can't use oikos to refer to an individual. So, so the Philippian jailer, his wife presumably, uh, and at least one other person that we would call a dependent is there. And we also know that the conversion experience of the Philippian jailer implicates the whole family, no matter how old they are. Like this was decided at the jail before they went back to their, to their house. Yeah. They are still at the prison when he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in this cultural context, if the head of the household converts, then the whole family converts. If the head of the household is baptized, the whole family is baptized. And so it doesn't matter actually if the dependents are three months old or 30 years old, their baptism into Christianity is in some sense imposed upon them just like it is with infants. Yeah. And and that's true even if it was only the jailer and his wife. Like we don't know what his wife's immediate internal response to the gospel message was. That says they were all rejoicing and so we can deduce that she was happy about it ultimately, but I I just really don't get the sense from the text that every member of the household was given a choice to individually affirm the gospel and get baptized or not. It it seems very clearly to be a household decision, and they actually didn't have the freedom to reject it. And and on top of that, when Paul says this as a response to him, he doesn't know who's at home. Right. Right? So when he says, you and all your household, he has no clue who that entails. He just looks at the man and says— Whoever is your dependent, whoever is in your home right. will come with you because you have chosen. That's a great point. They're all in. Yeah, that's awesome. And now I don't think that that means we should go around baptizing people against their will or anything like that. I just think, again, we have to consider the context in which the New Testament was written. We can't just impose our individualism onto the text. Yeah. And so whether there were actually children present in this particular case or not is actually inconsequential. Because what we have here is evidence of a pattern of household conversion and household baptism using language that has specific connotations of inclusivity for children. So what we're seeing then is that Scripture really gives us, at least 
three major indicators to be pro-infant baptism, to kind of like begin to sum this up a little bit. Right. Is that we see that there is relationship in Scripture, that Holy Scripture talks about itself, between baptism and circumcision. Yeah. We see that in the cultural context of the first century Christianity, uh, which is has the first Jewish converts, that they would have needed to be told expressly that their children were no longer welcomed into the covenant. But there was no expression of that. And right. because of that understanding what that looked like for them in their culture, uh, we can say, for some reason, the Lord didn't think it necessary to tell them that their children were no longer present. But he allowed that to continue in some way. And then third, the one that you've just been speaking of is this, is connected to that, which is the understanding that salvation is for the whole household. Uh, again, all three of these cases are coming from Holy Scripture itself. Is that a fair way of kind of wrapping it up? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really important for us to say, and, and again, to reiterate that these points that are being made are actually a response to what does Scripture say about this? Yeah. It, it, sometimes we can start talking about the points. We can start pulling those things out. We can start, you know, talking about the words like oikos and what does it really mean and the cultural context and bring it right back to the point, which is when someone asks, but Holy Scripture doesn't say anything about this. It's actually not true. Yeah. Holy it Scripture says, says about it. it says a lot about it. Yeah. And so not everything is as explicit as we would want it the way we want it, but it's somewhat because of our unfamiliarity with Holy Scripture that we think that it's silent. Yeah. when it's really not. Yeah, people will say the same thing about, you know, where is the Trinity in Holy Scripture? That's right. Well, it isn't in those terms, yeah. right? Yeah. But an orthodox understanding of Scripture leads you to affirm the Trinity. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So that's a wrap for us on the first part of our two-part series on infant baptism. Today we took the opportunity to look at arguments from history and Scripture that could and we think should lead to a favorable position on infant baptism. Although today I think we, we hit maybe the most significant arguments against infant baptism that people make with me personally in speaking about Holy Scripture, I think probably the most compelling point is still to come, right. and that's infant baptism and the gospel. And uh, I think this is, truthfully, this is where I think you have really your teaching on this. I'm so excited to just kind of sit back and let you uh, hit this one because the first time I heard you talk about that, I went, yes, there it is. That's that's the last piece to the puzzle. And it really rounded out the picture for me uh, in a way that I thought was so helpful. So we're going to finish this next time and we will address infant baptism and the gospel and we will take on some more objections that we really need to connect with in order to help people understand a full picture of what infant baptism really means and maybe change some of their cultural context of the way they look at it currently as well. So thanks for following along with us today. This is Lesser Known Lewis. I'm Jordan Duncan. No, sorry, that's the last guy. And that's his podcast you're supposed to give a one star to. This is the Missionary District Podcast. If you're wondering about a schedule, I used to try to keep a schedule, and I've just given up on that now. So I'm going to release episodes whenever I have the time to record them. That's helpful. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can always send us an email, missionarydistrict at gmail.com. 
Uh, but save your angry letters until the end of part two when you've heard us address. <laughs> like the preemptive, the preemptive. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you again soon.